Lamentations, chapter 1, starting with verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah, verse 3, has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away captives before the foe. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? Jesus, please add a supernatural blessing to the reading of your word. You promised in your word that you are near to the brokenhearted. And Lord, as I pray over this precious group of people in this room right now, there are undoubtedly many brokenhearted and hurting people in this room who suppress hurts in different ways. There's others that have been hurting and others that will be hurting and likely both. And so God, here's what I'm asking you right now, that beyond my ability to articulate your nearness, would you come now and show yourself near to us for your glory? Amen. Amen. Well, if you're visiting, my name is Peter, and welcome again to the Springs. Uh, Today we are addressing the second poignant question in our series, our unfiltered series, where we're examining hot-button questions that our culture is asking. And the Bible has been answering these questions from the beginning. The question today is, how could God allow suffering? Is that a question that we're asking? It's a good question. How could God allow suffering? Clive Staples Lewis was a British soldier in World War I, and he suffered the loss of his best friend in World War I. And in the aftermath of the Great War, he suffered just a general disillusionment about the state of of the world at large and his place in it. He went on to be a a renowned atheist professor at Oxford University and he handles the problem of pain in his book, The Problem of Pain, 
And he articulates it very well. He says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. And therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. And over the next several years, he harped on this problem. The problem of darkness and pain. And the thing about when you examine something, sometimes the light of God's word gets in enough to overtake you. And what Lewis soon found was that perhaps he considered a slight consideration. Perhaps the suffering in the world isn't just a proof against God, but what if it's a component in God's plan of redemption? That God uses suffering for redemption, and it's a part of redemption. And of course, when, when he gave in to that thought, he was transformed. He became a Christian. And he writes later about Christianity at large. He, he, he had already addressed this problem that he had addressed before. And in this book, Problem with Pain, he says, Christianity has the master touch, the rough male taste of reality. Not made by us, Christianity, not made by us, nor even for us, but hitting us in the face. You see... Christianity may not just solve the problem of suffering that we bring to it. Jesus might not answer all of our questions, whether it's about suffering or anything else. But something that Christianity does, and the Word of God does, is it hits us in the face. It hits our questions in the face. And it subjugates or presses down all of our questions to a lower place where they have to serve a higher truth. And in regards to suffering, we can see that pain is upon in God's sovereign plan and purpose. Fast forward a little bit in the same C.S. Lewis during World War II, where they thought the Great War in in England was uh, one of great pain and suffering, and they found that World War II, men left to themselves it gets even worse. And BBC actually called C.S. Lewis, now a renowned Christian professor in, uh, at, in London, they called him in to preach and teach about Christianity. This is public radio. Called him and asked him to give a series of lectures to give hope to a hurting people. These lectures were later recorded in a book, uh, Mere Christianity. And it's in this book that I think he sums up the whole pain issue best. He says... My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I gotten this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? So here's what I want to do, church. Today I want to examine the straight line of God's word. I want to unpack our passage and spend some time going through our Lamentations passage verse by verse. It's the first time I've ever preached 
on Lamentations. I want to examine the what and the why of suffering and see the answers that God's word has for us. We're prone to giving lazy answers. God's word gives good answers. The what and the why of suffering. We're going to follow the straight line of the perfect law of God and see where we begin to twist it and it curves its way into our dark and painful places. I see, first of all, with the what of suffering. In these verses, I want to examine them verse by verse. I see at least five things in these five verses that talk about what suffering is, which is largely an emotional burden. So are we ready for this? A few people over here. All right, here we go. First of all, suffering involves loneliness. Loneliness. First part of verse 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow she has become. Loneliness. Lamentations was written likely in the 6th century BC, immediately following the exile of God's people uh, from their own land into the land of Babylon. It was most likely written by the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, His nickname by modern theologians is the Weeping Prophet. How would you like that to be your nickname? This man understood loneliness. He, in recent decades, had witnessed his own people's abandonment of the straight line of God's word. And in recent days, he had witnessed the the suffering that results from a people abandoning their God. The, The promises of God had long eluded the nation of God, and the suffering and the consequence was now upon him, the curse of it. And Jeremiah had, even 11 years before, he had gone to the king and warned him about all these things. He had warned him particularly. He said, King Zedekiah, here's the law of the Lord, the blessings and the curses for following him or rebelling against him, respectively. He warned him. King Zedekiah would ask him to read little by little. He'd read a little bit of the scroll, and then King Zedekiah would cut it off and throw it into the fire to insult him, and then he locked him up in prison. Jeremiah understood loneliness because suffering involves loneliness. This is the same Jeremiah that God said, I will prosper you and not harm you. I know the plans that I have for you. How many of y'all have seen that not talking about weeping prophets? I think Jeremiah understood that he needed the promise of God to be rooted deep in his heart because the evidence of his life suggested otherwise. And suffering involves loneliness. Suffering also involves deflation. And I'm not talking about like Tom Brady deflation, if you follow the NFL. I'm talking about glory squandered. Deflation. Second part of uh, verse 1, she who was great among the nations... She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. Greatness squandered. 
deflation. Verse 4 even. The rose to Zion mourn for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. This was a place that once was teeming with people, with the praise of God, with the sacrifice, with the joy of restoration. And now it's just empty. This speaks of religious as well as uh, economic deflation and squandering. And it's a, a particular kind of suffering because you know what you're missing. It's deflating. I mean, I suppose if all you ever knew was suffering, then you'd just be like, you know, that's kind of par for the course. There are some nations that it's like, you know what, I'm not super mad about everything that stinks here because I've never known anything different. But glory squandered and hope deferred is what Israel was facing here. It's deflation that was upon them, that's been upon you and me at different times. I'm going to carefully comment on the state of our country right now. I would argue that most of us, if not all of us, are in one sense or another unhappy about the direction our country is going right now. So much out there is just not so great, right? And it would be fruitless to argue about what that is, right? But we can all assert that there's something better we're made for. We can, we can argue about what that is, but that's fruitless again. But there's something greater we're made for. There's something special about this nation that God has given us that we're not living up to. MLK said it is the the higher creed that we're responsible for and we're eluding it. It's deflation. She who was once great among the nations, it's deflation. Suffering involves loneliness and deflation. And thirdly, I see suffering involves rejection. Verse 2 She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Rejection. You see, it's one thing when your enemy wrongs you. But when you suffer betrayal and abandonment from someone you have previously had reason to trust, this, is, this isn't just a hypothetical pain of suffering. This is something we can all understand. And this is what was facing the nation. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Have you ever given yourself to something or to someone that doesn't give back? I mean, again, when, when you're rejected and abandoned by someone you don't care about, it's one thing. But when someone takes something from you in the process, it's the suffering of rejection. Suffering involves loneliness and deflation and rejection. And suffering involves exclusion. Exclusion. Verse 3, Judah has gone into exile Because of affliction and hard servitude, she dwells now among the nations, but finds no resting place. Essentially, no home. 
people of God were excluded from God's promises that had been provided for them in the first place. They went into exile. And they were left worse than homeless. They were displaced from their home, taken captive elsewhere, and then shut out of their home. Exclusion. If you haven't seen the movie Castaway from a long time ago, then I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. Uh, there's a, a hardworking guy that works for FedEx, and he uh, has a family and a life, and he goes and he wants to make sure that something is delivered, and he goes and, and on, he's on the plane, and the, the plane goes down, and he's the lone survivor on a stranded island, and the next several years of his survival kind of chronicle the suffering he goes through, immense physical, emotional suffering. Uh, the pinnacle of it is that when he performs oral surgery on himself with an ice skate, right? I would argue that the worst point of suffering in this whole movie is when he gets home and everyone has moved on without him and now you see him essentially exiled from his former life. He's excluded. He's on the outside of his former family and his former home and they try to make like a cute ending to it but it never got cute to me. Suffering involves exclusion, and this is what God's people were facing. Finally, the last thing I see here is that suffering involves consequence. Go to the start of verse 5. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper. Now, this language has some very, very specific weight to it. Any of the original hearers would have heard this as a direct curse. Because back in Deuteronomy 28, God's people were sent into the land and given promises that if you obey me, you will be the head and not the tail. But here you have the opposite. God's people have disobeyed God and now the enemy is the head And not the tail. They disobeyed God and they were now wallowing in their guilt and consequence. The blessing of God had long escaped them and now the particular painful curse of consequence was on them. Whether it's in the past or in the present, we need to know something about the wrath of God. God is a righteous, wrathful, loving God. Yesterday, today, and forever. If you disagree with it, it doesn't make God any different. He's full of wrath. And you need to know something about God's wrath. His wrath has nothing to do with God vengefully wishing harm upon his creation. God's wrath most often has everything to do with God turning you over to yourself. If you read Romans 1, And letting you do what you want and suffer the consequence. See, for me in my life, it's bad enough when when I fail and I know it. But when I have a particular, I told you so, kind of hanging over my head, this is the weight of consequence. Your enemy has become the head. You were supposed to be the head. But you disobeyed God. Consequence. Loneliness. 
deflation, rejection, exclusion, and consequence. This passage in Lamentations pretty much grippingly tells of what suffering is like. But now I want to examine why. Why? Why why the suffering then or now? If we move on in the verse, the middle of verse 5, check this out. Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now, there's a very simple answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? It's very simple and yet very difficult. But I'm going to ask you to be brave to examine all of the reason here and the implication. Because the Lord in transgressions. The Lord is an active agent in afflicting creation with suffering because of our transgressions. The Lord is an active agent and the diagnosis is our own sin. It's a very clear diagnosis and very difficult. I've had various sicknesses and physical illnesses over the years and I'm going to have more. But the hardest part of the suffering physically has been uh, when my sickness goes undiagnosed or worse yet, misdiagnosed. Can anyone relate to that? Now, if this is true for physical suffering, how about spiritual? This is the way I was growing up. I was a religious hypocrite growing up. I was a pretty nice kid. And I was quintessentially misdiagnosing my own sin and suffering. And I thought I was so fun and so cute as I spread around my perversion and manipulated people. And I was, I was spreading around suffering in a nice little blanket of nice guy oppression. I was misdiagnosing my own issues and denying it when, it when the real truth of my sin and suffering got near me. Until high school and I was invited to a, a campus ministry and they opened the Bible. And eventually I read all the words of the Bible and, and the, the whole of the gospel of Jesus and I gave in, I became new. But that first week I didn't. That first week I just heard the Bible and I was kind of like caught by it. Like it wasn't just that they were reading the Bible, it was that the Bible was reading me. And that first week I did not give my life to Jesus. But I, in reading the Bible, had a strange mix of peace and pain. The way I can, best way I can describe it is that there's nothing like the Bible that rightly tells me with cutting accuracy what's wrong with me before telling me how it can be made right. Because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. It was clear to me when I heard the Bible and it, and it hurt, but it's like the pain that I needed. Because I had kept diagnosing other things as the problem, other people as the problem. The Bible gives a simple and clear answer for all the problems of the world, and particularly suffering. Suffering exists in the world because sin exists in the world. Now, I realize that many people suffer injustice and abuse because of the sins of someone else. 
And this is, this is something we're all aware of and affected by. But in a general sense, suffering exists in the world because of the general effects of sin. And the general state of depravity and sin is something that we're all affected by. But listen, beloved, something that we also all contribute to. And the worst of our contributions spreads around when we deny this hard reality and when we deflect it on someone else, right? Like, oh, the bad guy, the bad guy is the president. I mean, look at this. Or the bad guy, oh, it's the liberals. They're the problem. Or, or my dad. And all the while, I'm misdiagnosing my own fault and spreading it around. You come back to our nation for a second. When you look at our nation's history and the history of Israel, Israel, there's some a few at least painful correlations between our country and Israel. I mean, there's so much potential and so much sin, right? Like, man, when we look at our country, it's like, man, there's so much great things happening and yet so much difficult history. And when I look at the whole of our nation, I think, man, the fact that God is prospering us and has prospered us and been merciful to us and that we still exist as a nation has a lot more to say about God's mercy and grace than it does about our industry. Or our documents, as good as they are, the mercy of God is the most prevalent thing that I see in our history. That God would be so gracious to us despite our treatment of Native Americans, of African slaves, of Chinese rail workers, of 50 million babies since 1973 that have been denied the right to be born and enter in this, this conversation, of the systemic racism that we still are pervaded by and denying at the same time. For me, the biggest question is, how has there not been more suffering in our nation? God is good. And the undeniable truth is that suffering exists because of our sin. Suffering exists because of our sin. And God is active in afflicting us with consequence. A just and righteous God will not allow sin to flourish without the consequences of sin afflicting creation. I realize that this is a really hard thing to process. But I'm afraid that if we don't process the whole of this truth, then we're missing something vital about the gospel and probably calling ourselves Christians and, and yet continuing to suffer the same patterns of the same sin habits and not rightly cherishing the whole of the good news of God. The straight line of God's law has been twisted by us in us and made crooked by our own rebellion. And God will see, through it, see to it that he straightens everything out. That all debts are paid. That everything is made right. That all sin is righteously atoned for. And of course, 
This leads to the best part of the story. See, years before Jeremiah had spoken about lamentations and the suffering of God's people, God had given him another prophecy, and he wrote it down in Jeremiah 31. Uh, and he kind of saw it in part, and, and God said, you know, there will come a day where I'll give you a, a new covenant to my people. And no longer will my people just try to follow my law and fail and suffer the consequence, but I'll put my perfect law inside of them. See, Jeremiah wrote this down. What he probably didn't see when he wrote this down was that for God to give a perfect expression of himself inside of us, he would first have to deal with all of our ugly imperfections first inside of us. And for this, Jeremiah could actually go back further than his own word. Generations before Jeremiah, Isaiah prophesied about how God would deal with our imperfection. How God would initiate this this whole new covenant thing. Isaiah wrote, if you go back to Isaiah 53, he wrote of the suffering servant that would come to deal with with our sin and suffering. And he wrote about this long before Jesus, who he's writing about, came on the scene. And even generations before the exile of God's people into Babylon. As I read these verses, I want you to think about what's similar to our Lamentations passage. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent he opened not his mouth By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, excluded, stricken for the transgression of my people? Jesus suffered loneliness and rejection and exclusion and deflation. He was despised and rejected by men. The very men who said, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go with you everywhere. They left him in a moment to hang on a Roman cross all on his own. Rejection and loneliness. And he, he was stricken, cut off from the land of the living. He was excluded, hung outside of Jerusalem outside of the city that he helped David to found hundreds of years before, and he helped Ezra and Nehemiah to restore later, he was was excluded. 
This man who deserved infinite esteem, we esteemed him not. Jesus suffered the depths of all suffering on our behalf. But let me point out a few things before we close that's very, very different about Lamentations versus Isaiah. Jesus suffered consequence, but he suffered your consequence and my consequence and not his own. His suffering was by substitution and not by merit. Lamentations 1.5 says, The Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Whereas Isaiah 53 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. Now I said earlier that God is the agent of afflicting us in suffering, but the turn of all turns is that He would choose to send His sinless Son and afflict Him so that his sinful sons and daughters could be restored. Don't ever get over this. When you're suffering, don't ever get used to this. He was smitten by God. He was crushed for our iniquities. It was the Lord's will to crush him. And it was so messy in public the way Jesus suffered. You see, we tend to try to suppress our own sins, not talk about the things that really drive our behaviors, not really open up to other people or go to growth groups. We, we suppress it and it, all the while our suffering just keeps multiplying in secret. Jesus hung on the cross in public. So listen to this. It doesn't matter if you've suffered the worst of abuse or if you've perpetrated it you no longer have to hide. Jesus hung in public. Sin was dealt with in public. He doesn't just relate to your suffering and your pain. You see, that's better than all the other ideas of the history of the world, that we have a God that relates to us, but he doesn't just relate to us. He carries your pain. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So it doesn't matter what I'll go through in the future. I say bring it on. Whatever suffering comes my way, what could I face that my God hasn't already come and publicly dealt with and conquered? He's near to the brokenhearted. One last key difference before we close. Between lamentations in Isaiah, Jesus was a silent sufferer. Lamentations 1, she weeps bitterly in the night. Isaiah 53, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, and like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I think that what this tells us is that Jesus was silent because Jesus was willing to suffer on your behalf and on mine. It was always the plan of the shepherd to become the slaughtered sheep. That was always his plan, and he didn't protest it. He said, I am the good shepherd who lays my life down for the sheep. No one takes my life, but I give it. So here's the question as I close. If he is willing to lay down his life for you, 
Are you willing to lay down life as you know it? In your pain, in your suffering, in your struggles. To walk with him in the newness of life that his cross has paid for and that his verifiable resurrection confirms for you. Are you willing? You might not ever know the answers to your questions. You might not know why. But you can have better than that. You can know the one who knows and be united with him in life. Would you pray with me?